It's back, the Reckless Renewables Rally. Make a statement where it truly counts, this time in Canberra. Join us on the Parliament House lawn at 10am on Tuesday, February 6th, the first session of Parliament for 2024. People from across the country, coastal and regional areas are rallying for the government to stop the reckless rollout of environmentally harmful, unreliable and costly so-called renewable projects. These include wind, solar and high voltage transmission line projects. Listen to speakers representing the federal and state governments, community organisations and environmentalists, all accompanied by great music and entertainment. Bring your flags, banners, signs and most importantly, your voice and ears to support rural and regional Australia. Together, let's ensure that the Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Chris Bowen, and the Australian Government take responsibility and stop the risks and costs associated with their reckless and obsessive rush to adopt these so-called renewable energy projects. What's on the line is Australia's national interests, our economy, our security and the well-being of our environment both now and into the future. Join us in Canberra. Together, we can make a difference. Not clean, not green, not net zero. No one has ever shown that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. We have a massive power and it's the power to say no. They, they put all these words on these flies and it means nothing. It's, it, it, it's garbage. We're all going to die! <laughs> Doctors are gaslighting patients. If you keep silent, then this is what's going to happen. And they'll make us silent. I would rather paper cut my eyelids than have anything to do with <laughs> We are one people, one flag, one Australia. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Ex-Candidates. My name is Stephen Tripp, joined by Adam Zara. Now, Adam, last week we had a big episode with Shane Cordfield, uh, former UN peacekeeper, and we got a lot of comments on the on the chats and the various sites that we're on all saying, good on you, Shane, that was an excellent interview. So people seem to really enjoy it. What, how, did you, yep. how did you find it, mate? Um, I, you know, it scared me because, you know, I, I, I thought that... Um, you know the UN with you know the UN peacekeepers are there for the good of the world, and I've realised that actually they're not. They're just paid militants to go in and you know um, what do you call it? Um, you know achieve a, a target, and whoever's paying the highest bill gets their services, and it's kind of like internationally backed. So I, was, I guess it was a bit um, eye-opening, but um, you know um, uh, Shane was a really good guy and um, had a really good good things to talk about so it was really awesome to actually chat with him and it'll be good to get him back on yeah no definitely uh, i think i said caulfield it's called well sorry so sorry <laughs> shane for <laughs> saying the wrong strong name but uh yeah no we'll definitely have him back on he's got a lot of stories to tell and it, it, it'd be i mean it would be terrifying to have un peacekeepers come into your country and uh, you don't know who to trust and and which ones are the good ones and which ones are not the not so good ones but hopefully australia is never faced with that uh, what we're faced with coming up on the fe- on February 6th is the Reckless Renewables Rally. Now, I played the promo at the beginning there. Uh, now, this is for all the farmers and people in the country and people in Port Stephens and down in the Illawarra that are uh, facing offshore wind farms and uh, wind projects and solar 
panel projects and batteries and on the transmission lines and transmission lines crisscrossing the country to get to these projects is tearing up a lot of uh, farmland, a lot of land, a lot of environmentally sensitive land. So people are getting down to Canberra on February 6th to protest in front of Parliament House. If you can get there, it is a Tuesday. Uh, it starts at 10 o'clock. If you can get off work or if you happen to be free or whatever, if you can get down there, it would be. Uh, a, we need a big turnout. So whatever you can do, uh, I think it's very important. Adam, you're going down, are you? I'm going down as well. I'm going down. And I, I, I implore everybody, take the damn day off work and head down there and show your face because all this um, policy is doing is driving up electricity prices for everyone. So lose a day's worth of work, go down and protest, show, show lose, lose you, you know, whatever, a couple of hundred bucks, right, 500 bucks, whatever, lose that. Right to try and save in the long run because we need to change these guys' mind on this stupid ideas and stupid things that they're doing. We know, and you know, I was going to talk to um, our special guest, Birchall. We'll get to him in one second, but um, about this because he's a, an economist. But um, what happens is it's driving up prices, okay? And it's just it's just it drives up the um, from my understanding of it, it drives up inflation and it just makes everything more expensive. Not to mention driving the deficit. Okay, takes away our security of energy. And the people of, I guess, when policies made by policymakers, they promise one thing and then they, and really the people feel and see another thing. So there's a really big disconnect between, I think, policymakers and the people. You know, oh, this green energy, this renewable, fake renewable energy, as we call it, is a great thing. It's going to be that, you know, you can, as Albanese said, you know, you have the solar panels on the roof, you plug your car in at night and you charge your battery, okay, and it costs you nothing. Well, that's all a lie. So, and, and I think the people see that. So that's really important. And I think we need to really stand up and the conservative, we need some conservative acti- activism and this is the way to do it. And we've got uh, Jeffrey Robertson in the chat. He says, uh, take your tractor with you. Yes, if you can, if you can take your tractor down there like they do in Germany. And I've been in, I was in Berlin some years ago where they were doing a protest and uh, there was just tractors as far, every direction that you could see, tractors, 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 and it was incredible. So if we can do something similar in Canberra, uh, you know that would be a, a big statement. But if you want to, if you want to support us and what we're doing here on the X Candidates, you can head over to buy me a coffee. Uh, you know, just chop in, chuck in a few dollars if you if you choose. Jump on to buy me a coffee, and that supports what we're doing here. Helps pay for the subscription and everything like that. So uh, that would be great if you could jump there. But on tonight's uh, on tonight's episode, uh, we have. Birchall Wilson. Now, Birchall is the former chief economist at the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. He holds degrees in both economics and law, including a master's in economics from John Hopkins University. At last year's New South Wales state election, he ran for the Libertarian Party in the seat of Bathurst, and he has been described as one of the most impactful policy, uh, public policy economic, economic, I can't speak tonight, sorry. Economist. Economist of his generation. Virtual, how are you going tonight? Uh, hanging in there, but uh, look, energy policy is something I had uh, quite a bit to do with um, when I was at the Chamber. So I'll, I'll definitely be at the uh, rally on the 6th of February, and we've got some people coming down from Oberon as well. There's uh, Great. plans yeah. to roll 400-odd wind turbines out across uh, Oberon in the state forest here, and uh, the locals don't like it one bit. They're about 250 metres tall out there, if, 
I'm going 275. To... They're almost as big as the uh, Centerpoint Town. It's going to be horrendous up on the ridge lines, and they'll be visible for kilometres around. So um, it's a, a real issue for the local community. It's bad public policy. These things, if the subsidies didn't exist, they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't be commercially viable. So uh, the key key issue there, of course, is uh, is the subsidy worth whatever public benefit they're trying to get out of it? And the argument from the left is the uh, the benefit they're trying to get out of the wind turbines are the abated carbon emissions, but um, the value of the carbon abated is orders of magnitude lower than the subsidy provided. So it, it, it makes no sense even on their own terms from an economic perspective. You uh, you tackled this back when you were at the um, Chamber of Commerce and Industry. You led a business coalition that successfully prosecuted the case to rationalise the renewable uh, energy target. Now, that erased $12.5 billion uh from the nation's energy bill over over sixteen years now, is that is 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 that kind of uh, wastage rife in government? Is it? Or, and next question: Is it incompetence or pure corruption? I think in the energy sector, that's the renewable sector is probably the worst. I mean, renewables is corporate welfare on steroids. The uh, the other industry that was the perennial mendicant going to government for handouts was the car industry, and they said the argument there was, oh, it's an infant industry argument, but it uh, ended up being a, a permanent infant that never reached global scale, never matured, and ultimately uh, left our shores. So uh, this this is just orders of magnitude worse than the car industry, and most public policy economists realise this. From, for instance, from 2014 to 2030, it turns out there were $38 billion in subsidies going to be paid under just the renewable energy target to these uh, uh, wind and solar operators. So it's a huge, huge pipeline of corporate welfare. Made no sense in as much as the alleged benefit in terms of carbon carbon abatement was orders of magnitude worse than the, uh, the price of that carbon globally. Wow. So basically, like in lay terms, right? So there's no benefit to these stupid wind turbines at all like not financially not carbon wise not environmentally wise or anything well not on net no um but to to your earlier question i mean what drives this uh fundamentally what drives this is uh the uh concern about climate change which which is more uh, a political campaign at this point than a scientific one alongside uh, corporate welfare on a massive scale. So it's mm-hmm. it's a worse combination of green left progressive politics and uh, investment bankers and global global uh, mutual funds who want to invest in this stuff and be paid a large subsidy to do it. We've got a comment in the chat from Sasha. She's asking if if these subsidies are about in, uh, destroying the economy. Well, look. Uh, when I was at the chamber, I, as you pointed out, I headed up a uh, campaign to rationalise the renewable energy target. We had the Business Council of Australia, the Minerals Council of Australia, locked in behind the Chamber of Commerce and Industry. We went to Deloitte Access Economics at the time, asked them to look at this for us, have a look at the electricity impacts, have a look at the broader impact on the economy. And that was quite striking. So no, no one had done this analysis before and fed those 
electricity price shocks through a large macro model. And what it told us is it was bad for wages, bad for employment, and ultimately it would need to lead to a net economic loss across the economy of about $28 billion. Now, the thing about that is uh, the industry didn't like this very much. So instead of uh, dealing with the arguments, they decided to come after me on a personal level. Uh, and the sort of range of different attacks over a period of about uh, six months, they came at me through the membership, they came at me through some uh, pet journalists that wrote hit pieces. And ultimately what they did is they, they paid someone to dox me. So the Clean Energy Council, as, as part of its uh, advocacy program, it uh, goes around doxing people it disagrees with. And look, I can see the reason they did it. There was $38 billion in subsidies I was... Um, shining a light on and pointing out look this this makes no economic sense even on the uh, even on your own terms i mean the 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 value of the carbon abated using these mechanisms is uh far less than the subsidy you're uh, receiving from the ultimately the, the energy user i i, I sorry, live in I, I'm just going to quickly, sorry, Adam. I, I live in a, a teal electorate in Moringa, and I look at the the voters that are supporting the teals, and they've uh, we've, we've discussed it on this show before. They have like a cultish um, attitude about them. But what you described is the the, the level above that is al- almost like a mafia, whereas they won't they might not kill you, but they'll come after you professionally and try and silence you and, and destroy you that way. Well, yeah, this, uh, this industry is extremely malevolent. I, I couldn't make up what happened to me. It's just so sinister. So I wake up on the morning that the Warburton Review is due to be released. This was the review that the Abbott government commissioned of the renewable energy target. We had some uh, eminent economists on the, the panel. Dick Warburton headed it up. So what I found on the morning that the Warburton Review came out was Someone anonymously or using a pseudonym had somehow managed to find their way into my Facebook account, ransack about 12 to 18 months' worth of posts, try and find anything they, they, could, they could use to either discredit me or, or get me fired. And they've sent that to six members of the Canberra Press Gallery, copied in the CEO of the Chamber of Commerce and Industry, and all of a sudden I'm uh, front-page news for 48 hours over... Uh, essentially trivia, tongue-in-cheek remarks amongst friends they, they used to uh, light me up in the press, try and get me fired, because they, they wanted to protect their $38 billion in subsidies. I mean, it's just uh, sickening behaviour, and you have large corporates. Uh, they, 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 fund, they fund the Clean Energy Council. These are, these are some of the biggest names in Australia. I mean, Transgrid, Asiona, the uh, <clears throat> Pacific Hydro, there's a whole list online. Uh, go online, check the members of the Clean Energy Council. If you want to write their, if you want to write their uh, government relations people a, a letter, then um, feel free. I'll be following following up that uh, in, on, on a personal level at some point this year, and probably I'll probably mention it at the uh, the rally. To be honest, because I'm I'm sick of living with it. So I haven't told the full story yet. This kind of first tentative airing of what happened. And it's just the uh, it's just the most corrosive sort of behaviour you could imagine from any sort of uh, business organisation. It certainly doesn't seem that they're after that they're really working for the best interests of Australia and the Australian people. No, no, no quite the opposite. I mean, it's uh, 
these are rent seekers who will do say anything to uh, ensure that public policy is geared towards delivering them tens of billions billions of dollars in subsidies. And whether whether or not it makes any sense or not, they don't seem to care because it's the lifeblood of their industry. They cannot survive without without these subsidies. And so, and just just so just so we're clear, right? Subsidies are taxpayer dollars. Your our money that we earn that we pay into, into, like, as taxes to the government, right, those subsidies are that money. That's why our taxes are partially so high. Uh, in this case, the subsidies actually, it's crafted in a different manner. So the way it works is there's a mandate for a certain percentage of renewable energy. In order to meet that mandate, the uh, renewable energy generators are paid uh, renewable energy credits, which are the subsidy in this case. And because it takes place off balance sheet, it's it's paid for ultimately by the consumer. So the, the price of those renewable energy credits gets added to your electricity bill. So that that's who's paying the subsidy. It's a neat workaround because it's invisible. It's not on budget. So you can't go, you can't point out a budget line item, but it's definitely there in your electricity bill and it's uh, pushing them higher. And also the, uh, the Productivity Commission hasn't been particularly good at um, picking this up either because usually the Productivity Commission's are pretty handy at uh, uh, fingering corporate welfare. Every 12 months they put out a trade and assistance review, but they've kind of never really picked up on the, um, the huge subsidies under the red. I mean, they, they don't have a specific line item because it, it's difficult to, to to quantify because you have to forecast the price of these renewable energy credits. I mean, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. I, so I just wonder why they haven't done a better job of doing it. So then it's basically a tax on your net income. Oh, yeah. So uh, it has the same effect as a tax. It um, drives your electricity bill higher and delivers tens of billions of dollars to these large renewable energy companies. Okay, people. So what 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 um, Birchall's basically saying, well, saying is, is that basically you earn whatever a hundred thousand dollars, you pay your thirty seven cents in a dollar tax, and then that little bit that that the um, what do you call it sixty three percent that you get left with is then when in your electricity bill, some of that that you pay your electricity bill is another tax. So it's a it's a tax on your net income, just like. Other things when you um, you know paying your excise taxes on your fuel and on your cigarettes and on your alcohol, that's another tax that we don't see, just like toll roads and all those kind of things. So yeah, effectively, effectively, it's a hidden tax. You're, yeah. you're exactly right, and this is what I said once the uh, the carbon tax was repealed back in um, 2014. That uh, the next biggest cab off the rank was the renewable energy target, which was effectively just a, a hidden carbon tax. And from an economic perspective, um, whether it's a tax or not, doesn't really make too much difference if it's having the same impact on end energy users. I mean, it's it's an artifice, and even the legislation uh, implementing the carbon tax went out went out of its way never to use the word carbon tax because the ALP was so so paranoid about um, the carbon tax campaign. And fr- frankly, it was. They just had their legit the, whoever drafted the legislation. Um, uh, decide to engage in that exercise in spin, which was um, horrendous. When I spoke to you off air, uh, you know, I said to you, "Oh, this is where Adam and I are really excited about this because we haven't had an economist on the show before to talk about these issues." And you said, "Well, there's not many in Australia." Do you think that's 
part of the problem. We're all thinking that there's all these clever people out there that are analysing these things and surely someone can see it. Surely someone will come out and put their hand up and obviously they'll get attacked for it like yourself. But if enough yeah. people do it, they, they, you know, there will be too much pressure for the government to to push through with it. But is it just the case that there is not enough people out there that have the training and the knowledge to really pick these things apart? Yeah, precisely. And uh, I think the Reserve Bank put out a paper uh, maybe five, six years ago outlining just how many economists there were in the country, and it's only about 4,000. And of those, the vast majority of those either work for government or in academia. So if you work for government, what, what are the chances that you're going to be allowed to have an opinion on policy matters? That's probably close to zero. And, and even if you tried to have an opinion on, public, on policy matters as a government-employed economist, well, well you, it's going to be career-limiting if you express them. So most most economists, they're bought and paid for, they're forced to keep their head down. And the sort of economists, sort of people who have this the scope to uh, be vocal about public policy, just very few and far between. So maybe they work at uh, a think tank or maybe they work for a trade association or an organisation like the Chamber of Commerce and Industry. But you could... And, or maybe they're commentators at the Australian. I mean, Judith Sloan's uh, national living treasure, as far as I'm concerned, because she's uh, got uh, deep expertise, she writes well, and she's incredibly brave. And I suppose I was incredibly brave in Canberra, but at the same time potentially incredibly naive because uh, I suppose I, I, I kind of had no conception that uh, anything like this was at all possible. And, uh, but frankly, I didn't care because it's the right thing to do. Well, that's what happens when big money is involved. And we think that, you know, we live in a good country and we have a good um, system of government, but these are billions and billions of dollars that these people stand to, to gain at the end of the day. So they'll do anything that they have to do to get their agenda through. And that seems to be the attitude of the Clean Energy Council that um, they got a good outfit outcome for the industry so and they got away with it i mean it's, it's it hasn't cost them anything and partly because uh the press the press did their bidding for them and weren't particularly concerned when i pointed out what they'd done exactly because at the time i had no no idea who'd done this but then two weeks later uh an it guy i knew had had dug around in the metadata and actually identified the individual and once I, once I knew it, it made a lot more sense. So it was then that um, I realised, well, that's, that, that, that figures, that, that's why this individual's done this, and that individual's at the Clean Energy Council. Mm. Yeah, but then it becomes incredibly difficult for you because if you put your head up and say, well, this person did it, you're facing defamation cases and, and lawfare and all these things that take you know, decades to and, and years to, to go through. It sucks so, the soul out of your life, mate. They suck is, the soul out of your yeah, life. And, and, and money out of your bank account as well. This is how they do it. This is they, they target good people who might not have the capability to go up against these, you know, huge, you know, well-funded groups. Yeah, well, at the time I, I, I went to the Australian and one of the journalists there, I said, look, um, he, here's what happened here, and they wrote it up. And look, I, I called the Australian Federal Police to get them involved because there's a potential uh, range of potential breaches of criminal law involved. 
And the story ran, uh, it, was, it got published, nothing really came of it. The uh, police kind of couldn't be bothered, said it was a civil matter. And you're right, if you, um, if you take on powerful people in this country, they will sue for defamation just to shut you up and dump legal costs on top of you. It's just uh, that's, that's how they operate. It's game to them, and they think they're above the law for the most part, probably because uh, they've got enough money to be above the law. I mean, we got a few top. Like, how bad is the misinformation, disinformation bill going to happen? Well, going to be when it gets passed on issues like this. That's one point. But just before we go to that point, what was when you um, when you did the case to rationalise um, the renewable energy target? Did you do a comparison between renewable energy um, methods and nuclear energy? Like, did you give them any sort of comparers into like? the cost-benefit analysis and all that kind of stuff? No, look, the the debate about nuclear in this country is kind of... Um, and this this circles back to uh, Stephen's point that uh, are, there, are there really intelligent people having these conversations in this country? No, absolutely not. Um, That's so scary. It, it is. It's, it's terrifying. I mean, academics, they stick to their knitting. They don't want to get involved in the the uh, cut and thrust of Australian public policy because um, energy policy is just a killing zone. It's uh, the, the the left will destroy your career over this stuff. Well, uh, it's just simple. It's simple numbers. If we if we take if if, you, if it's right, there's four thousand economists in Australia, and we take COVID as an example, where ninety five percent of the population went along with the government mandate, and five percent resisted, and they resisted quite. You know, they went up against to, to resist that. What's 5% of 4,000? It's not a lot of people. It's not a lot of people at all. And, they're, oh, they're, yeah, look, and there's, there's just no organisation. There's, uh, there's there's no funding of uh, public public interest litigation on, on the right. Uh, people got people's employment. There was, there's no scope legally, apparently, to... Um, to push back on vaccine mandates, so uh, most people just got steamrolled economically, and um, they couldn't even organise politically to lobby for their own rights. It's just uh, incredibly frustrating. Hmm. I think. I think the thing is, um, Australia doesn't have a very deep civic culture. So, in terms of the in terms of the right in Australia, we've got the Institute of Public Affairs and the Centre for Independent Studies. And then you've got the two major parties. So beyond that, there's sort of not not the rich ecosystem of grassroots organisations, uh, public interest litigators that you might find in the states, for instance. Mm. I think they're forming. I think people are starting to come together, and they're learning. I mean, we're still in the infancy of it all, but I think there are good people coming together in the background and saying something's not right, and are the the true interests of the people are not being represented uh the the people in in government are not representing the people and they're not representing the interests of the people they're more interested uh representing the interests either of their party or of lobbyists so sometimes these things do take time to to formulate and gather together but uh in the meantime, there's a lot of money and a lot of wastage that's going on and and unfortunately it's our children that are going to have to pay for it all yeah, I, I, I look at this because um, 
as an economist, I'm, I'm forced to engage in sort of uh, an analysis of the political economy landscape in which an economist operates. And from that, I mean, well, why, why are things as bad as they are? Why, why didn't I have access to a large pot of money to either defend myself when I was doxxed or run the advocacy when I ran it? Actually, the amount of money the chamber chipped into that piece of research was precisely zero. And simply because I was able to pick up some grant money. So, and the realization is that uh, we don't have a political elite that uh, cares very much about us at all. So, most of the money in politics is actually it's just the public the public uh, electoral funding. So I think it's two out of three dollars comes from the taxpayer. Uh, there's a bit of corporate money, not a lot. There's uh, truckloads of trade union money. And the whole system runs on inertia. So you have these two major parties, the Liberal Party and, that, and the, uh, the Labor Party, and what matters that to them is their brand. And most of the people who get into Palm just ride that brand into office. And the whole thing, as far as I can tell, policy is basically dictated to us by the media, and they're probably the last people you want formulating or dictating policy. So who are the media? They're barely employable liberal arts graduates who've got no, no subject matter expertise, they're not really accountable either, and they can pretty much say or do whatever they want. And I was reading your I was reading one of the articles that you wrote and and Jim Jim Chalmers, the current treasurer of Australia, is not an economist. He's got a uh, he's got a PhD, but it's in uh, political economy. I was actually looking at it the other... Sorry, it's in politics. So he spent, I, th I think it was like three or four years at ANU writing this uh, extended thesis on Paul Keating and his time in politics. And I was reading it just uh, a couple of days back. I was thinking, well, this guy's not interested in policy at all. He's interested in politics and power. And he hasn't bothered to educate himself about how to formulate policy or constitutional matters or or educate himself, give himself a lottery system. He, he just, this is someone who just wants to be in politics for the sake of being important. I mean, it's um, almost a vanity play. Hmm. And I think about Paul Keating, it was, um, look, he got, he got a whole bunch of things wrong. He, he put the economy into recession because he wanted to target the current account balance, which uh, if you're talking to any economist these days, would just um, make them despair at, as to how backwards it is. And why, why, was, why did we have the Hawke-Keating reform era? Well, that was largely because the, the Liberal Party and the Nationals were urging them to go further. So it's easy to reform things when you've got the opposition party of the day telling you that uh, you haven't gone far enough. So they used, I think they used to call John Hewson uh, Captain Zero because he wanted to go zero tariffs. Um, so reform is easy. Uh, when you've got no obstacles, and there's, yet there's this whole uh, mythic narrative around the Hawke-Keating reforms, a lot of which were just inevitable. This is one of the things I was talking to you before as well, and I said, oh, well, we had all these reforms under Keating and Hawke and then Howard and Costello, but we haven't really had reform since. And you said, you corrected me, and you said, well, that's not correct. We've had reform. It just hasn't been the right reform. Do you want to maybe expand well, on that? We've we've had we've had changes, but they've been bad changes. I wouldn't. Reform is generally uh, something you that um, in, improves productivity or welfare. So, 
I think I think my issue is has there been any major reforms since the GST? And no, probably not. But we, what what have we ha- what we have had since the GST is a whole bunch of uh, policy missteps, and carbon tax being one. Uh, more recently, the, the Labor government has just turned our industrial relations system on its head. There's been no real changes in uh, the uh, the tax system. Um, but there have been a whole bunch of um, very poor infrastructure projects. And what else? Oh, it's just um, <clears throat> difficult to... Uh, to dif- so many policy missteps, it's just difficult to, to mention them all. So it's kind of it's being death by a thousand cuts, and that's what's undermining productivity. I mean, you can't you can't point to one particular thing, but if you can point to about 50, 60 different uh, policy measures that all point in the wrong direction, then uh, collectively they add up to a lot. So it must frustrate you, and you must want to just you know pull your hair out, going if you know if, if you were the treasurer or you know had some sort of sway over the government, is there any types of reform? or changes that you would like to make to, to make the economy stronger or, you know, put more dollars in people's pockets or, you know, fix the tax system? Or what, what's something that you would love to really sink your teeth into and, and change here in Australia? Well, c- coming back to sort of meta issue of um, the political economy landscape, I think, I think what I'd really like to see are better institutions. So Milton Freeman's view was the point of uh, economic institutions or institutions generally is to make it easy for bad people to make good decisions. But unfortunately, um, what we have at the moment is a set of institutions that enable bad people to make very bad decisions. So I'll I'll give an example of um, the set of institutional frameworks we have at the moment that uh, have, have led to uh, quite quite good outcomes on a macroeconomic level. So what we what we've done globally is we've outsourced monetary policy to independent central banks, and what that does essentially is say, look, we're, we're taking this away from the politicians; they can't be trusted. You leave politicians alone with monetary policy, and all of a sudden you end up like Argentina with 140 percent inflation in certain circumstances. So globally, there's consensus that politicians just couldn't be trusted with this. So it got outsourced to independent banks, central banks. These central banks were given uh, given institutional uh, independence, and <clears throat> that those arrangements were sort of. I think initially they were they were informal. Then they became formalised in legislation and convention. And what do we get as a result? Inflation has been um, tamed globally. At least, uh, I mean, we've had a, a recent outburst but at, yeah, in terms of the increase in uh, inflation post the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But that historically has been quite modest relative to the sort of um, double-digit inflation rates we had in the 1980s when uh, monetary policy was still in the hands of um institutions that weren't necessarily independent. So you have to have a set of institutional arrangements that make it easy for bad people to make good decisions and hopefully make it hard for bad people to make uh, bad decisions. And we just don't have that at the moment. Okay. Uh, On on specifics, um, 
I think I think at the at the current point in time, I'd just be happy if uh, they stopped um, turning policy on its head and changing things markedly. Because so, look at um, business investment at the moment as a proportion of GDP. It's at 1990s recession lows, and that's why productivity growth is so poor. So productivity growth is poor. Uh, because businesses don't have the confidence to invest, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And interest rates have just gone up, so it's uh, harder to meet the hurdle rate for projects. And on top of that, you've got all sorts of potential policy uncertainty from the federal and state governments. So, uh, sorry, I was going to say. So, what? Like, I've got you know. So, what does it take then? And I don't know if I'm repeating the question, but what does it take then to turn our Turn it around. What is it? What is it? What What does Australia or Australian Treasury need to do? Okay, to like to turn it around. Like, how do we get back to surplus? Because I think surplus is, from my understanding, when I heard the last budget, was that surplus means that if you pay, if you can pay the interest off the debt that a country has and have money left over, you're in surplus. You're not actually paying any principal back. Well, I'm probably less concerned about the budget at this point, but you're you're exactly right. The Liberals managed to trash that while they were last in office. Uh, but turn it around generally. Uh, people people always people always quite pessimistic. They say, "Look, well, it's going to take a long, hard recession before anything um, anything changes in terms of public policy formulation." But uh, we we had that. It was actually self imposed in conjunction with the. Uh, uh, pandemic. So the re- policy response to the pandemic was to cause a severe recession. Did public policy formulation improve afterwards or during that period? No, absolutely not. It's just uh, things got worse and worse. So I think uh, way, what you really need is uh, better leadership and there's there's no sign of that uh, manifesting itself because there's, there's no money, there's no incentives to do it. So show, show me the incentive and I'll show you the result. And if the only incentive is to, uh, if the reward for uh, being brave in Canberra is to have your career destroyed by the press, why would you bother? So no one, no one's got near it. Uh, uh, career in politics, it's uh, career suicide. Why bother? People don't, and they just get frustrated, angry, bitter, and uh, none of those energies are channeled particularly productively at the moment. You, you hit the nail on the head. We're, we're definitely lacking leadership here in this country, um, so, and, I, and I think you're right. I mean, people just don't want to put their hand up. I spoke to um, my accountant the other day. He's my age or a little bit older, and, and I said, how do we get people uh, my age and your age engaged? And he's like, well, they're so busy. They've got families, and they just, want, they just don't want to put their head above the parapet because they can – one little bad post on social media or, or something and, and they could lose their employment. So it's a, it's a, it's a rough old world out there, but we, we definitely need people with uh, some leadership and conviction and uh, with some true vision for this country to stand up and, and take it in the right direction. Well, that's uh, precisely the issue. There's the, uh, the politics of personal destruction in the political arena Mean that um, you'd have to you'd have to have rocks in your head if if, if you've got if you've got a house and a mortgage and kids, 
why would why would you risk any of that for the sake of uh, doing doing anything in the public policy arena? Because uh, no one's going to thank you, and you're going to have a whole bunch of people come after you, trying to destroy you on a personal level. Uh, key amongst those will be the journalists, left wing activists, Antifa, and they think it's funny. They they get off on this stuff. If they can if they can get someone fired, they uh, they really enjoy it. I've sort of um, been going back and forth with a range of people on Twitter over the last three months, and they think it's hilarious trying to figure out where you work, trying to get you fired, and that's uh, that's just normal for them. And well, because, it's sick. It's yeah, just look, sick. Uh, but that's where we are. It's, we're in a we're in a cold civil war, and a lot of this is just uh, delayed, delayed uh, catching up with where they are in the states. Uh, if you go over to the states, it's just orders of magnitude worse again. People people informing on their colleagues because they had the wrong app on their phone at an advertising agency. So doing doing anything they can to dox harass. Uh, destroy the reputation of the individual, the business, destroy their careers. And uh, one of the key, um, and the reason the reason they're despised is journalists uh, journalists thrive on this stuff. Yeah. For, for cheap click, clickbait articles, they're just completely unaccountable. Where unless you can sue them for defamation, uh, which is quite uh, which is quite difficult, expensive, and uh, Unfortunately, if, if what they say is true, even if it's trivial, if what they say is true, then you've got no legal recourse under defamation law. Mm. So, and that, that just blow you up for, for anything. These days. And look, if, if they can knock out Christian Porter on an allegation as sketchy as that one from a woman who's now deceased, then what hope do ordinary people have? So I understand why people looking at uh, Australian public policy and, more importantly, our, our our political life, just think, well, what hope is there? And I suppose because I've been through this once already and kind of can't, I've been cancelled once, so I figure you can't get cancelled twice, so I just don't care anymore. There's <laughs> yeah. one reason I ran last year. It's good to uh, play a part in helping John Ruddick get elected to the upper house. Um, but at, 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 at some point you have to realise you don't have a choice so I may be cancelled 100%, but this accountant friend of yours maybe is only cancelled sort of 60% because he's never going to reach a managerial position or uh, certain opportunities will be denied to him because of his uh, race or gender. Mm-hmm. And so sort of certain people are cancelled to a certain degree already. So it will get to a point where people will realise, well, I've I've got uh, more to gain than I have to lose, and the other thing that the left are doing by cancelling people is that they only go after the uh, the high performers. So I, I was an early casualty. And the thing is, um, once you build up an army of people who are high conviction, high capacity, and have nothing to lose, do you th- do you think we care very much? Yeah. No. Do you, th- do, you th- do you think we're we're, we're going to stay silent? Do you, do you think what what else can they do to you? I mean, so I'm quite happy to go for the throat of these people, point out what they're doing, how they're doing it, bring it to the attention of the people who are funding their advocacy and uh, campaigns of harassment. And I'm not alone anymore. Initially, I was alone. People said six months of blowover. But uh, more than nine years later, and the left is still crying about uh, how they got me and what they got me for, and they think it's funny. 
well, um, they're not so funny when you throw it back at them. And this just these are just terrible people. What drives them, I think, fundamentally, they are deeply insecure because at the end of the day, a lot of people on the left, they just um, they want more equality because because they're losers. Hmm. It's yeah. like going through a bad breakup, you know, you've, the first heartache is always the worst, but then you pick yourself up, you move on and you, you move, you know, and then it's not so hard again. It, it's, it's, it's similar. If, if they come if they come after you and attack your career and you pick yourself up and move forward, you develop that extra layer of skin almost where you're not maybe not bulletproof, but you're, you know how to handle it. You know that nothing's inevitable. You can move on and you can find ways of moving forward and, and, and getting past it. So it makes you even more, I guess, dangerous going forward because now, now you've been knocked down and you've picked yourself up and, and here, you get, here you are ready to go again. Well, but uh, not just that. Uh, this whole journey it took, took me first across to London and then it took me across to the uh, uh, D.C. in the United States. And while I was there, I um, picked up a whole bunch of new skills in the political arena and the campaign space. And I come back to Australia and just realised that um, things are quite quaint by comparison. So we don't have a professionalised political class in the same way they do in the States. So in terms of campaign strategy and tactics, they're about 10 years ahead of where we are. Uh, In terms of data analytics, we're probably about 20 years behind best practice. And I did campaign school, candidate school, comprehensive fundraising training in the States, and it's, it was incredibly empowering. And you're bringing that here, right, in coming up? You've got events booked for... Yeah, but, um, we've got uh, local council races later in the year. Good thing about local councils, they're not particularly... It, it's low cost, low risk, and I thought I'd um, put together a program for people and we've, I've got some Americans that are going to teach this program. It's a two days intensive boot camp on soup to nuts of how to run for local council. Some of this, some of the uh, digital stuff is incredibly uh, uh, powerful. It, um, we teach people how to fundraise, responsibilities of office. is a, se- a session on defamation law, electoral law. And what you realise after you've done all that is just um, how empowering it is because the political class is one-tenth of one percent of the population and if your political class don't know what they're doing, then the, the entire country, the entire, the entire movement is just leaderless. So conservatives don't train their candidates. So I'm just running this program as a pilot, People come along. It's two days, two hundred fifty bucks, and do two days, two days worth of instruction with uh, some of the world's leading political campaigns. These guys have raised four hundred million dollars in the last four years. They've won three hundred odd legislative campaigns in the states and built email lists bigger than this entire country. So it's an incredibly empowering thing to do if you don't have the skill set. Kind of defenseless, and the and once. And you kind of um, stuck in that mindset that your accountant friend has is well, they don't know what they can do. They don't know how they can how things can ever be any different. And they're also incredibly risk averse when it comes to politics because uh, if there's a um, sort of crisis communications event, they don't know how to handle it. There's a threat of a lawsuit. How do they handle it? If they get uh, caught up with a um, 
defamation action or human rights commission investigation well this uh this program gives you the skill set to make sure that uh you uh you don't get um you don't get chewed up legally you protect yourself but also gives you the uh, the skill set to win and the other thing about local councils is um run for local council who really cares it's uh rose rates and rubbish in in it in in a, in a large uh in large parts so it's it's not particularly vicious i was um a bit active around the lithgow city camp uh council campaign back in um 2021 and it's all very civil it's all very constructive it's really more at the state and the federal level that politics gets really nasty because it's impersonal and there's a lot more press involvement so once you're on council, you could sort of leverage that up to uh, a run at state, or if you're the mayor of a large uh, regional centre, you could um, potentially have a tilt at uh, federal politics at, um, and simply on the basis of the name recognition. You, you need that time in the community, and time on council gives you that. So, so we, that's um, yeah. So we get sorry. a lot of, we get, we get, sorry, we get minor party, like, people watching us, you know what I mean? I'm sure we've had a few... Of higher ups in the minor party, people watching us are, are on the libertarian side, probably one nation side, um, and probably a little bit of UAP side as well. Do you recommend that anyone running, anyone that's um, you know going to try and um, contend for the council elections coming up this year, that they should actually attend your this course, and um, and and or should should the minor conservative minor parties be sending people or their primary candidates to these courses to learn how to campaign properly good or are they going to keep from a stone, them <laughs> sorry i said good luck getting blood from a stone hey blood from a stone but you know if they want people to run yeah, yeah. look um all of the above i mean people want to win they have to they have to learn how to win and unfortunately it's just a lot of magical thinking in the campaign space so we like to be a bit more scientific uh, once people are trained then they know how to fundraise, they know how to formulate a budget, they know how to meet a vote objective to get onto council. And some people I'd recommend come along, not just uh, people who are going to run, but also people who are going to function as high-level high campaign volunteers. Because the first thing that happens once you're a candidate is you lose about 30 IQ points and just become you become like a, a hamster on a hamster wheel, just trying to get everything done. You need someone there to help carry the load and keep you focused on what's important. So the the the, uh, camp, the boot camps are perfect for that um, purpose. Either whether you're a candidate, campaign manager, or even if you just uh, want to be active in the sort of not-for-profit space, building a grassroots movement, running a small think tank, or uh, maybe you have um, certain uh, issues campaigns you want to run, freedom of speech, right to life, whatever. It's um, that uh, that. The boot camp caters for that skill set. Plus, it also scales to um, to state and federal. So, it's in, in a way, it's kind of wildly overpowered for council because a lot of these councils out west, uh, they almost have as many candidates they have spots on council. So, it's just a question of putting your hand up. Yeah. Um, but if well, you're running for what? Some some people believe there's going to be a federal election in November, so uh, maybe we all need to get ready and get to these uh, these boot camps. I'll put the link in the chat. Uh, sorry, in the show notes. Uh, there's three events. There's two in Sydney and one in Oberon. So uh, if people can uh, you know give up their weekend to go to these events, I mean I'm sure 
the money will be well spent. I've also put the link in the chat if you want to call in and uh, speak to Birchall. We haven't had too many callers lately, so please call in and uh, ask Birchall a question. But one one question that I've asked on this show in the uh, last few uh, episodes is how come a family in the 1970s, 1980s or 1990s could buy a home on a single income, maybe the wife is at home looking after the children, raising the children, but we can't do that anymore. Like Now it's even hard with two incomes to try and purchase a property here in Sydney at least uh, and elsewhere in the country as well. Uh, what happened? Apparently we haven't had a recession in 30 years. We've had an economic boom. We've got the mining industry going bonanzas. But for some reason, uh, house properties are way out of reach. And you, you might be able to answer this question, that be one, you, because you're an economist, but also looking at this graph that you posted here on uh, on Twitter, uh, are you able to answer that question and maybe explain this graph? Well, just, I find a lot of the conversation about house prices very disingenuous because the problem is uh, all, these, all, all these bank economists and People who work in the corporate sector, they, they can't mention the obvious, and that is house prices are driven by demographics and immigration policy does matter. So we've, we've, we've actually been through a period now in terms of the um, COVID lockdown. We sort of had a natural experiment whereby immigration was cut off overnight and then it uh, ramped up sharply again. And what, what we saw around that period was... Uh, rents rents came off markedly, but at the same time, you also had house prices were, were relatively um, stable and in, in, in probably increased a bit. But that was more a function of interest rates than it was uh, the um, the immigration issue. So I, I'm an economist. I went away, looked at the economic literature, and did some estimates, and I. <laughs> The long-run elasticity of house prices with respect to population growth is about two. So what does that mean? It means if, if there's a 1% increase in population, it means there'll be a 2% increase in house prices. So I thought, uh, well, that's interesting. What, do, what does that mean in practical terms? And what sort of role has immigration played in the current um, housing affordability crisis. So I went back 25 years and said, did a thought experiment. What if um, immigration, net overseas immigration had been set to zero? So I looked at uh, the resulting population and then I translated that through to house prices using that estimated elasticity. And it kind of turns out that uh, the impact of immigration over that 25-year period has been huge. So if you'd had net overseas migration set at zero, according to economic modelling, and that, that estimate's consistent with the, the estimate they use in the, the Treasury model and trim. Turns out that uh, if you'd set net overseas migration at zero 25 years ago, house prices would be 40% lower. So, 40%? But, yeah, it's huge. And no one will mention this because they're just, uh, I, th- I suppose the thing is if you work for government, you can't. If you work for a large bank, then anything... Any sort of discussion about immigration at all is just almost forbidden because your view is you'll destroy a career. Uh, so you look to the economists at the um, the think tanks to be more objective, and they're just not. I mean, uh, Peter Tulip at the Center for Independent Studies is just completely obscurantist. He, he mentions the supply side 
uh, ad infinitum, but trying to pin him down on the impact of immigration, they just he won't mention it, despite having written one of the seminal papers in the country on uh, house prices and, and house price models. And so that's how, that's how bought and paid for most economists are. And it's the reason why I'm sort of glad I've moved away from the industry or the profession, because I, I can be more outspoken as an economist, not actually working as an economist. And yeah. probably more impactful as well. It's it's ironic, but uh, that's just a function of sort of politi- the political ecosystem in which most economists find themselves, and, and the absolute intolerance of any sort of reasonable conversation around immigration policy. And it's uh, so, so I would have thought the relationship would be fairly obvious, and it should be fairly un- uncontroversial to discuss it because. Uh, there is an economic literature out there, and I did, did consult that economic literature in, in terms of coming up with those estimates. Um, but trying to get uh, any sort of traction with the national media, they just um, they don't care. So we could, I'm sorry, because I'm, I'm hung up on this house price thing, because house price rights, million dollar house, if it was set at net zero immigration, that million dollar house would only be worth around about 600,000, roughly, okay? And then... If you got rid of all the green tape and all the levies on that, we know that that's $110,000 per house anyway. So you're talking about the average house in my area where I live out in southwest Sydney is around about a million bucks. You can't buy anything for really under a million bucks these days. I'd be looking at something that really was a million bucks should be really around about five, four hundred to 500000 Yeah, this was, uh, and this was all a result of deliberate policy decisions and Ultimately, the political class who made those decisions, they just didn't care. Or if they did care, they didn't, they, they weren't informed. Because a lot of, um, I don't know, it's 80% of our parliamentarians are just making up the numbers. The, num- the, the number of politicians actually understand how many economists are there in parliament. Um, they're mostly they're lawyers. They're not all... Jim Chalmers. <laughs> no, no, not Jim Chalmers. It's kind of, it must must be frustrating being Jim Chalmers, and you've got you've got a Harvard PhD in your junior ministry and uh, an Oxford PhD on the. I, th- I think uh, what Charlton's got a Charlton's got a portfolio at this point. So um, it's kind of, it's kind of embarrassing that he's sitting there uh, as a result of whatever factional arrangement put him in in the treasury role, and he's just uh, wildly underperforming. The guy. He's not credible when he speaks on economics. He's got no credentials for the role and seemingly has no appetite to do anything difficult in it. So I, I think housing prices are, are really um, important to, like, our audience. Our audience has, you know, we've all, our audience, there's probably people in our audience who are, like, you know, 40, 40 45, 50 that don't have houses. Then, or there are people who have houses and have, are worried about their children to get houses. Yeah. You know what? What other things are driving up price, uh, like housing prices, politically, um, other than say the immigration laws imposed and um, the green tape, i.e., the hundred and ten thousand dollars for all your water treatments and insulations and stuff like that that you got to put onto them now? Is there yeah, other? Look, is there other factors? Look. Uh, the constraint on the supply side is definitely huge. So, so Peter Tulip's not completely disingenuous in uh, in in flagging it, and ultimately, uh, demand. There's there's two sides to market. There's the demand side and the supply side. Now, the thing is, uh, there doesn't seem to be much ability 
to actually correct those um, supply side deficiencies. And largely that's a question of uh, development applications being approved, rezoning land for residential development. So in light of the fact that it seems impossible to do anything on the, on the supply side, well, my, my view is you do have a lever there that's uh, fairly easy to pull and uh, can have quite a large impact on house prices. So the, the debate people should be having if they're concerned about house prices is, is a question of uh, population policy. And, and until, we fin until we sort out the uh, supply side, there's, um, there's, we, we can't really afford to have uh, sort of 900,000 pe 900, people added to the population over the last two years. It's just been horrendous. Anyone who's trying to rent in Sydney knows how bad it is. Anyone trying to buy in Sydney? Uh, I feel particularly uh, sorry for young couples who are deferring having kids because they're trying to save a deposit for a house. And that's how bad it is. If you've got uh, housing policy and immigration policy set at a level that uh, destroys people's ability to start families, that's um, that's a, more a civilizational issue than a uh, an eco economic one. And we're not mentioning stamp duty either, the amount of money that, you know, you have to fork out just for stamp duty. And then you're locked in because, say, you purchase a property and a lot of the times you're going into you go into an inspection maybe once or twice, maybe three times, and you get five minutes to look at a property. Then you have to make the decision, am I going to buy this property? You don't know anything about the area. You don't know what it's like at night time. It could be, you know, there could be plenty of parties going around the area or you might not like your neighbours or whatever whatever issue might arise from a poorly uh, a poorly made decision and you go, well, I can't just sell it and move because I'm going to have to pay stamp duty again. So you, you're almost locked in in a way because of the, the $50,000 you'd have to fork out again just to give it to the government. Yeah, stamp duty is a wildly inefficient tax as well. So it's long, long overdue to be abolished, but state governments are addicted to it because it's about, well, I think about a third of their revenue. So until that uh, that um, revenue revenue source is uh, sorted out, you're not going to get any real any real progress on abolishing or reducing stamp duty. And you're right; it, uh, it leads to these sort of marked inefficiencies in the labour market as well. People can't relocate into state for new jobs because of uh, this uh, friction involved with having to pay stamp duty to uh, to relocate. I am going to ask you a, a hard question though. And feel free to correct me because I'm, I could be completely wrong about this, but I'm going to go back to immigration and I'm trying to learn a little bit more about libertarianism and the Libertarian Party and obviously you were a candidate for the Libertarian Party. But my understanding of libertarianism is that they almost believe in open borders because it's a, a free society and as little government as possible and you shouldn't have as you know restrictions placed upon you am i am i way off course with that in saying no no you're you're exactly right i think that's more a function of sort of libertarianism you find in the states at the likes of the cato institute so uh i certainly have an issue with uh large-scale immigration or any sort of open borders policy and whether or not uh, I triumph ultimately in terms of convincing the um, party executive at the federal level it's uh, it's kind of it's kind of a bad idea plus it's a it's a vote loser as well so I think um, I describe myself as more paleo libertarian 
And the thing I like about the New South Wales executive is there's that the, the, the scope within the Libertarian Party to encompass that worldview. So uh, economies, they're grounded in a political culture which ultimately comes out of a, uh, a civilization. And if, if, unless they're taught... Unless they're considering those broader issues and talking about issues of, um, and we can get into this if you want to, institutional economics and the political cultures that uh, support high-quality institutions of government. And no one does in DC because it's just, it's too esoteric, it's too esoteric a topic. And uh, a lot of these people who fund the Cato Institute, they're kind of, kind of highly ideological. And so if, if I have one critique of libertarianism, and it's one of kind of had to overcome personally and intellectually myself is uh, it can't be ideological. It has to, uh, libertarianism has to lead to good results. Otherwise, uh, there's no point um, adhering to it. So I'm, I'm quite pragmatic and utilitarian in that sense, which which makes sense given my background as an economist. I'm certainly, uh, certainly not an ideologue, certainly not someone who's going to sign up to open borders and just uh, blindly ignore any sort of downside costs involved in those sort of policies. So essentially the line has to be drawn somewhere, correct? Because if, if you go if you go the full mile with libertarianism, you, you, I mean, people make this argument that what's the difference between libertarianism and anarchy where there's no rules and laws at all? So could it just be purely we need to establish okay, we are libertarian, we, that's the ideology, but there are certain things where we have to draw the line. Uh, immigration might be one of them. And, you know, we can't just have, uh, you know, an influx of immigration if it's going to be detrimental to us, our standard of living here. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's precisely my point. So certain cases there, in certain instances, there'll be a case for immigration that will be beneficial to the economy and the nation as a whole. But uh, if you're at a point in ha with the housing market that uh, it's leading to families not being able to uh, start having children, then I kind of look at that and think, well, that's uh, that makes no sense to me at all. If you and I, I, I will not subscribe to a position that's. Uh, ideological if it leads to bad outcomes it's just i'm pragmatic in that sense i'm also uh, paleo libertarian as opposed to libertarian libertarian or someone who's more uh, anarchist libertarian or just someone who's more anarchist who doesn't believe in anything um and it's di it's a difficult part of the spectrum to inhabit because you don't necessarily find a lot of uh, a lot of uh, fellow travelers is that a problem within the Libertarian Party that there's so many different levels of libertarianism? Because um, I, I go to some, I've been to some of the branch meetings and things like that as well, and I know that um, a fairly competent candidate who's been around the area for a while, he says that he's more of a anarchist libertarian. And you're saying I haven't heard the term paleo libertarian before. Well, it's, uh, I think if you spend enough time in the States, you pick up a whole different lexicon. Uh, but you're right. Uh, libertarians are naturally highly, highly ideological, but also very, very principled in terms of their policy positions. So uh, it's, what, it's why I find a lot of the more conservative members of the Liberal Party washing up in the, in the Libertarian Party. That's why you find some of the more libertarian Liberal Party members uh, getting fed up and moving across. 
And I, I think um, for me it's the institu institutional economics argument that makes me uh, strongly paleo-libertarian. So there's a realisation that in the economics profession that a country has first-world living standards because it has high-quality institutions of government and a poor country has uh, third-world living standards because it has poor-quality institutions of government. So that's kind of the consensus within the economics profession. So the next question becomes, well, where do these institutions come from? And for me, as someone who thinks uh, a bit less, well, a bit, a bit bro more broadly than just economic models, uh, it's, it's sort of obvious as well, this, these institutions grow out of a political culture. And where does this political culture come from? It comes from certain parts of the world and uh, there's a whole interesting conversation there that I, I looked at the literature when I was at Johns Hopkins, and it is absolutely fascinating. Why do these city, why do these city states in Italy have these interesting uh, business norms that date back 800 odd years, and why do certain parts of the world not seemingly not able to form a, a stable government? So it's um. I uh, posted about this on Twitter this morning. There's a conversation we had in Canberra over dinner, and um, it's uh, it's very rich literature, and one that's in its infancy. And there's a great long essay by um, Garrett Jones, Jones from George Mason University that I've uh, linked to in that Twitter thread as well. Definitely worth checking out. Yeah. And we'll check it out on your page for sure. Um, I do have another looks quick like question. We, looks, looks like we may have a, a caller. I just want to see if I think he's on. trying to. I think Jason's trying to listen. Yeah, well, we'll he bring him on. Jason, have you got a question for Birchall? Uh, no, not really. I, I just I was just listening in and I was just listening in about the like what's happening in this country at the moment. I believe is just it's just an outright communist takeover. I mean, you, I'm, you've got Dan Andrews. Uh, going to China 14 times. I mean, why does he need to go to China to do business deals when he can just speak on um, government encrypted um, phones? Because government encrypted phones are, are recorded in triplicate and stuff like that. You can't talk about uh, shonky stuff when you're talking on uh, things that are recorded in triplicate. So that's what I believe. You've got all of this, uh, like, sabotaging our economy by knocking out power stations and and, and, and basically the war on energy that they've got going at the moment has just personified um, Biden's war on energy because Biden's war on energy, basically they've had a lot of, um, like, applications approved for, mum, mum, for the mummer and popper oil producers, but he's made so much red tape and so much expense that it's, it's literally caused them to say forget about it, which means there's about one to two million less barrels a day coming out of the ground in America, which is what drove the price of oil up, which is what's funded Putin's war, because the Russians need oil to be over about 80 bucks a barrel to be able to make money, good money out of it, right? So, I mean, and then you've got, like, the Labor Party making it worse by their war on energy and stuff like that. I mean, we're, we're really looking at from three years ago, we're looking at about 40% inflation, on, on a lot of items, not just 6%, like they say. I don't know where they get their 6% from. Well, it's 6% 6, it's 6 per year, and then it just adds it's 6 plus 6 plus 6 or whatever it might be. Is, is that is that correct, Birchall, when it comes to inflation? 
And do you believe, I mean, maybe the better question is, do you believe the inflation numbers? Uh, got no, no, no real reason to question the uh, ABS and the numbers they put out. But um, you're right, I mean, these things compound uh, over time. Uh, I think the US dollar's lost about 97% of its value over the last 100-odd years due to inflation. Um, so it's uh, just part of the way uh, things function. And I don't know that uh, it's going to change uh, too much. And the recent inflation uh, spurt we've has been it's been responded to. Inflation is coming down, and uh, I think longer term we'll get back to the the target band. And uh, I think the the real concern is that um, the rise in inflation hasn't been matched by an increase in wages. Uh, real wages have gone backwards. Mm. But don't uh, wages don't wage increases um, just drive inflation more? Like if you increase the wages while we've got companies in China where companies can hire like five to ten workers for the cost of one Australian worker and, and stuff like that. If you if you raise wages in this country, it's gonna drive inflation in this country and then it's gonna force more companies to run overseas, sort of thing, because they'd have to raise their prices to a point where they wouldn't be viable. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely a real concern. That uh, I think throughout this recent inflation uh, uptick, they were, the Reserve Bank was keeping its eye on uh, wages to make sure that wages weren't rising to keep up with inflation, which in turn would lead to uh, second round second round effects and sort of wage price in sp uh, inflation spiral that you learn about at um, at university. So we we haven't seen that, but at the same time. Um, We've still got uh, a labour market with sort of 3.9% unemployment rate, so beyond full employment, the economy is probably operating at capacity, and that's why the Reserve Bank is trying to uh, moderate demand to take that those inflationary pressures out of the economy. And what the federal government should be doing is uh, tightening fiscal policy to take the pressure off interest rates, and, and they haven't. Broadly, fiscal policy has been, uh, been neutral in terms of policy changes. So if it, you know, I think you asked me earlier, what would I be doing if I were uh, Jim Chalmers? And pr pretty obvious that uh, he should be doing this from day one is tightening monetary policy because uh, that just means <coughs> interest rates could have been a lot lower than they would be. Talking about Jim Chalmers, do you find it strange that they're trying to hand a lot of power back um, away from themselves. Whenever politicians are, uh, are are keen to dump power, bringing a law to dump power, it sort of makes you a bit uh, suspicious. Like, <laughs> like they remember he, want, he wants to give take the treasurer's power to overrule the Reserve Bank away. They're they're, they're, they're talking about that 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 law. I mean that sort of thing. That that that's just crazy. When you ever hear of politicians wanting to get rid of power, <laughs> they just always want more and more. Well, what you see a lot of the Labor politicians doing is because they don't have a lot of credibility of their own, they'll, they'll, they'll lean on bureaucrats and use their credibility. So Claire O'Neill is a good example. She sort of realised she didn't have the uh, intellectual firepower or the reputational um, the reputation to implement immigration reform, so she commissioned Martin Parkinson to go out and do a... Um, do an immigration review for her, Martin Parkinson being former Treasury Secretary. So we, we see a lot of that with uh, 
Labor governments, particularly in the Treasury portfolios. Uh, Jim Chalmers, I'm sure at some point, will be hiding behind uh, Stephen Kennedy, the current Treasury Secretary, whose uh, signature is on your dollar bills. And uh, you're right, I mean, these, um, these, are, these are things that if they had any sort of uh, statesmanship and capacity for uh, leadership and intellectual ability, they, they should be making these arguments themselves, but they just don't have the confidence and they want to um, they want to leverage the uh, the reputations of and potentially damage the reputations of some of these senior bureaucrats. So the new head of the Productivity Commission is probably going to be a victim of this. Uh, Daniel Wood, uh, career bureaucrat, worked at the uh, Labor-founded Grattan Institute, and it looks like she's uh, she's she's flying kites for Jim Chalmers. So she's front-running policy for him. Thanks, uh, thanks, Jason. We'll have to we'll have to let you go. Um, but thanks for your comments. It's uh, thanks very been, much, Mike. Been, been some really good comments there. So uh, thanks for watching. If you do, if you are have a tr tr hopefully it inspires trouble, more people to ring in next episode. Sorry, yeah, Stephen. If, if you are having trouble uh, <laughs> hearing it on the Facebook, head over to Rumble. Rumble's uh, Rumble's really good, or, or YouTube. We're streaming there as well. So. Yeah, Rumble's really great with um, with uh, with content uh, people that pr presenting content, but with commenting, I've noticed it can be a bit of problematic. I tend to copy my comments before I post them on Rumble because they yeah, disappear. Yeah, Rumble, Rumble's worthless when it yeah when it comes yeah. to that. It's and um, <laughs> we, we it's not integrated with Streamyard, so we can't unfortunately get the comments from <laughs> Rumble. But uh, we do have a look at it afterwards. So, but thank you, Jason. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll, well catch you. God next bless, time. mate. Have a good day. See ya. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. Now, right. virtual. We're getting towards the end because um, you know we've taken up your time, and thank you very much for uh, giving us your time. Uh, I just want to ask one quick question: uh, What are your views of the GST? Do you think that's a good uh, option? I know uh, when they when when Costello implemented it, he didn't implement it as well as he would have liked due to having to negotiate with the Democrats and and other parties. But what is your overall? overall view of the GST? Well, I suppose my overall view of the GST is um, it's an efficient tax, but do you really want to get, give the government a, uh, a, new, a, new, a new revenue source? Because it's just, it's just going, to be a, it's going to be a ticket for, it's going to be a licence for a larger government. And the one good thing about the GST is it's been very politically difficult to increase it. Imagine if it hadn't been. They've got, uh, they've got consumption taxes in the order of 20% in Europe. And as a result, they've got um, governments as a proportion of the economy are sort of 40 to 50 percent across Europe. And from the revenue and from the uh, billions of dollars provided by the consumption taxes. So, yeah, look, uh, yeah, sure, it's an efficient tax and potentially could uh, replace a whole bunch of other taxes. But um, you could also you can get rid of those other taxes, the inefficient ones like stamp duty, by cutting government expenditure, and that would be my strong preference. Uh, there's no way I'm going to green light a government to have um, a whole bunch of new revenue because uh, it's bad enough they misspend the um, the tax dollars they do have at the moment. Got now, that's right. We've got okay. to kind of, kind of punish Big Brother a little bit. We have to punish them a little bit and take <laughs> away. We have to take away their iPad or laptop a little bit, right? Oh, exactly. So it's it's been pleasing that it's actually the left to oppose any sort of change to the GST, because otherwise uh, that that just be um, hiking this thing all the time. So yeah, just from a political economy perspective, um, the sort of status quo is uh, and sort of 
sensitivity around the GST is, um, I, I think that's, I think that's a great thing. Okay, and it's now time for our final segment, and it's called Build Your Fantasy Government. Now, Birchall, you're in charge of the next Parliament of Australia. You can choose five or six current or former politicians. They could be living or deceased. Uh, they could be experts in a certain field, maybe an economist that you know. doesn't have to be a politician. It can be anyone you choose, but you're in charge of the next Parliament of Australia. Five or six people to head it up. Who do you choose? Oh, I suppose we need a prime minister. So, I don't know. How about Andrew Hasty? He's uh, that guy's kill count is probably it's uh, larger than the entire parliament combined. He's uh, young, attractive. Uh, I'm sure he can uh, rise to sort of John F. Kennedy type of uh, persona if he wanted to, and um, easy on the eye for the female voters. <laughs> masculine, conservative for the. Uh, people like myself, and he knows how to use firearms. So you can't go past hasty as um, PM. Um, draft in, have MLA as the treasurer, give him his, give him his chainsaw, let him go after the treasury department. <laughs> uh, probably, uh, if had, well, it's not really a parliamentary role, but um, uh, definitely turf Danny a wood out of the Productivity Commission, put in someone competent. Maybe... Um, uh, Tony Abbott's former chief economist, Andrew Stone, have him in the uh, either the uh, Productivity Commission role or the uh, Treasury Department. Someone sensible like Angus Taylor to head up uh, finance. He's got economics law, Rhodes Scholar, uh, formidable individual and good values on a personal level. And um, resources, we get um, Matt Canavan back into the uh, resources portfolio and add... Um, uh, make a joint resources and environment portfolio so you can uh, take care of all the red tape and uh, all the funding we provide to all these left-wing groups to uh, do advocacy against our own interests. So uh, I'm not sure if I left anything out. That's pretty solid. Like that's, I think out of all a lot of the guests that we've had on, that's a fairly solid, real-rounded kind of like overview of what, what's needed, I think, out of all the... You know, we'd always have to rate these. Um, um, these. <laughs> um, oh, so. I, I, I draft uh, Dick Smith into the immigration poll in the immigration uh, portfolio. I think uh, is actually interested in the, the nation's well-being in a way that most politicians wouldn't be, and they're just uh, all of them are captured by having to uh, service the the media and some of the property developer donors. So it just you know sort of policy area that you want to take completely away from uh, politicians just to, just so they can't do sort of damage they've done over the last 25 years. Mm. Wow. So, good Virtual, uh, how can people follow you? I know you're quite active on Twitter. You also have a website. What, what's the best way? Oh, look, um, I sort of do a lot of real-time commentary on Twitter, just whatever crosses my path and annoys me on a particular day. Uh, there's not much happening on the website at the moment. And, um, yeah, I just recycle a lot of interesting commentary in from the States as well, where the sort of ecosystem's a lot a lot deeper and richer. So um, some of the – I think the thing about me is because most other public policy economists won't touch on the sort of issues I'll, I'll touch on, then you can get some um, – you can get some deeper insights. Uh, I'll also – uh, hang shit on a politician if they need it, uh, critique a journalist, and I think they're out of line, which is quite often, 
and um, speak truth to power because uh, I've been cancelled once and figure out, well, still trying to figure out if, uh, pretty sure they can't cancel me twice, but uh, who knows? Let's see what happens. And also plug your uh, your boot camp as well because uh, I think this, I mean, if I can scrape up the $250, I'd, I'd love to come along as well. Yeah, I'm thinking about it too. I have to see what I can do. I have to talk yeah. to my accountant. So uh, but, um, we've got we've got student rates as well. So I've got some um, some sponsorship money to discount that for students. And this is this is the most empowering thing, empowering thing you can do in Australian politics. No one trains candidates, and admittedly, it's uh, it's 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 tailored towards local council races. But everything you learn here will be will be able you'll be able to scale to state or federal. It's just a question of uh, can you scale your volunteer base, fundraising base to that sort of level? And and look, if you if you get a if you get a spot on council, uh, good chance that um, maybe someday you will. So this is this arms you with the skill set to fight back. And if without that, you you're pretty much defenseless. I've got a lot of tradies and a lot of business people on this um, who watch this podcast, including myself. Are some of the skill sets that are learned that, without spoiling anything, can they be transferable to business as well? Yeah, I suppose um, particularly the digital digital marketing. So it's, it's funny one of the uh, one of the council candidates out in Lithgow. He ran a retail motorbike um, motorbike equipment business. So I was sat him down, showed him how to run Facebook ads and geo geofencing, and so oh, this is great. I can use this for my uh, for my retail business, and look, I didn't think it's particularly hard. But um, he uh, he was tenth. He, he placed tenth out of nine spots, and he got the countback position. But by that time, he'd moved up to Tyree, so didn't want to be a councillor anymore. But uh, he almost got on. And look, he, I didn't think he spent that much money either. And he learned something mm-hmm. and a skill set that was. Um, uh, applicable to his uh, to his business and some of the some of the defamation stuff you'll learn here definitely um, keep you in good stead. Probably a better policy never to target people on a personal level to begin with, but um, sometimes you just don't get a choice. Oh, that sounds good. It sounds interesting too because I might be able to write that off on a as a tax deduction. <laughs> <laughs> Business training. <laughs> speak, speak to your own accountant about that one. But if you're if you're in the not-for-profit space, or you're working as a staffer, or uh, have some other remunerative role related to uh, the, these sort of activities, then it's um, it's deductible. Oh, and, I'll talk uh, to some of the guys too. We've got some charities that watch the show as well. Yeah, students are more more than welcome to reach out for the uh, student discount and. Um, it's something uh, no one else has done before. Trained candidates. I'm quite keen, keen to see what sort of uh, results we get in September. But also, it's uh, great networking. You meet fantastic people, learn interesting things, and sort of insights that will give you into uh, uh, politics and policies um, second to none. Mm. It's definitely my, that was definitely my experience in the states, and it's going to be a pleasure to bring this to uh, to Sydney and Oberon. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you very much, Birchall. And also thank you for all the people in the chat tonight. We've had really good engagement. So thank you, everyone, for this, that's been watching and contributing. And thank, thank you to Jason for calling in as well and, yeah. and uh, following us there in the background. Uh, Birchall, I really love this uh, chat tonight. I really love delving into topics, especially topics that 
Adam and I not be not might not be well versed in and we learn from you so thank you for that and uh, we'd love to have you back on in the future maybe if there's a big economic policy issue that we can delve into at some point throughout this year we'd love to have you back on and talk about that yeah that'd be a pleasure and i suppose i'll see some of you folks at the uh, the rally down in canberra on the 6th of february yeah yes. we'll be there yeah you will all right thanks everyone for watching if you can share this out please do so i think uh there's some really good stuff in tonight's interview so please share it far and wide also check us out on instagram where i share the clips of the show uh you can follow them on twitter as well uh but Instagram's probably the best place for that thank you again adam i'll see you next week and uh hopefully we'll see you all again next week as well thank you for watching and we'll see you next time see ya, see ya.